Oftentimes in our Christian faith, and oftentimes in journeying with Jesus, one of the most important questions that is asked, or one of the most frequently questions that is asked, is this. What is it exactly that you believe? What is it that you affirm? What doctrinal statement or what statement of faith do you check off? And this is a question that actually comes up fairly frequently in the circles that we run. And Spark is a little bit different. If you've noticed or maybe haven't noticed, we actually don't have a statement of faith on our website. And we'll give you a fuller explanation as to why that is at another date. But I wanted to start by saying, oftentimes when we have that question and we wrestle with that question, we know that we're supposed to answer in a particular way because there's a right way and a wrong way. We want to make sure that we answer in the right way. We often reply by saying, well, I affirm dot, 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 or I believe dot, 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 or I am going to state that this is what is true dot, dot, dot. But what if the Bible doesn't answer the question, what do you believe, by I believe this? What if the Bible answers the question with a statement more like, once upon a time? And rather than just being a statement of what it is that you believe, What if the scriptures that we have, this amazing book that we carry around with us that has uh, influenced the world more than any other book, doesn't actually make a really strong statement of faith as its primary message, but what if its primary message, what if the thing that it encompasses Genesis all the way to Revelation is once upon a time? And if you were going to... uh, lay your child down to sleep or or tell a wonderful romantic story with your uh, loved one or or a family member, you wouldn't grab a, a book, a mechanics book on how the house is run or all the utilities and start reading off all the things about your household because that would be, that, that doesn't make any sense when you're trying to relate, when you're trying to love, when you're trying to share this amazing life. You would start most likely with a story like Once Upon a Time. And so tonight what we're going to do a little bit is start with Once Upon a Time. And we're in the second installment of Reconciliation. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring everything together. And we're going to start in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to start there with a reading. And then we're going to be all over the place. So, get ready. Chapter 2, Genesis. It's the first book of your Bible. We're going to start in verse... Eight. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. We'll end our reading there for just a moment. The Bible opens up with a story of once upon a time, and it opens up 
in the book of Genesis with a picture of an amazing garden, this amazing picture of how things are supposed to be. Genesis chapter 1, if you read it carefully, opens up with God creating things on certain days, and those days have patterns. So light and sun and moon, they all go together, and the expanse in the sky that God creates goes with the birds, and the expanse below where the waters are go with the fish of the sea, and God does this amazing thing. And in chapter 2, he elaborates a little bit more, and he begins to tell this story about this amazing beautiful garden with all sorts of gems. There's a river there. And in the middle of that garden, it, there's a representation of a tree of life. Now, in the center of this garden is the tree. Now, the tree has all sorts of symbolisms from the ancient world. And we're going to see that this pops up over and over and over again. When you think of the tree of life that is in the center of the garden, it is supposed to invoke within each and every one of us the idea, the symbolism of how God intended life to be. It's phenomenal. It's beautiful. There's this wonderful relationship between God and people. There's this beautiful relationship between people and each other. And there's this beautiful relationship between us, humanity, and the created order. And you, you see that in every twist and every turn. Now, if you're still in your Bible, <laughs> go to Revelation chapter 22. Because at the end of the book, at the very end of this epic story, we have something pretty fascinating here. Revelation 22. We've skipped over everything in the Bible and just gotten straight to the end. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, uh, down the middle of the great street in, of the city. On each side of the river stood, everybody say it, the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, at the very beginning of this story, we have this amazing picture of Genesis symbolized by the, and at the very end of this story, we have another picture right at the very end of Revelation, and it's symbolized once again right in the center with a tree of life. And if you were to take a look at the Bible as a whole, this entire story, you would see something pretty fantastically similar to what was happening here to what is happening here. Just take a look at a couple things. Number one, there's rivers that flow. There's a river that flows from the, from the very center of the Garden of Eden. Here in Revelation, the river is flowing from the throne. You have the garden over here where God is a gardener and he's planting a garden and he's creating all of this beautiful imagery about the, the place and the, the garden where God is. And it starts in a garden and he tells Adam and Eve, what's the blessing? Be fruitful and multiply. So it starts with two people in the garden. He gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply, and it ends up in a city of God. So there's a closing end and a closing chapter 
there. In ancient cultures, oftentimes rivers and water symbolized some otherworldly things. And so if you have a river that's flowing from the center of the garden, the garden is, in addition to being a garden, another symbol of something outside of this world, perhaps the throne of God or the place of God where God dwells, where God rules and reigns. And so the water and the river flows from the garden, uh, which is another picture of how to read Genesis as, as the place where God dwells, where he rules and reigns. And here in Revelation, in this, we have a river flowing from the throne, which is again the symbol and a, and a remembrance of what that Genesis story is all about. Does anybody remember what happens later on in Genesis after the tree of life? Does everything go right? Everything doesn't go right, so everything begins to fall apart slowly, and we see different stories, and it culminates in chapter 11 with the nations who decide all these people that are all over the, the, the known world at that time are now deciding that they want to reach up to God so that they can be like God. So they begin building a tower, uh, which we know as the Tower of Babel. And God says, this isn't a good thing because if all, by all one language, they're going to be able to accomplish anything. So I'm going to go down, confuse their language, and he scatters the people all over the place. And what happens in Revelation? The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, the bringing back together of the peoples that were scattered. It's so freaking awesome. In Genesis chapter 3, when things don't go right in Adam and Eve, eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good, uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God comes down to them and, and says, This is not a good thing. And then he places a curse. And what's fascinating about this is notice carefully Adam and Eve are not cursed in the curse, the snake is cursed and the ground is cursed. And so the, the curse is on the snake and the serpent and on the ground. And it's almost as if our actions don't necessarily curse us personally, but it curses the world around us. And now we have to live with the consequences of our actions because the actions that we take affect everything around us. And in Revelation 22, it says, and there will be no more curse. And one of the other images in, in the Genesis story is the light of day and the, the, the picture of the light, of the big lights governing. And in Revelation, there is no more need of that light because God himself is going to give the light. Look at this amazing, beautiful picture. Now, one of the things you have to notice in the Genesis and the Revelation tree Motif and metaphor. Two things. Notice what is there. Second, notice what is not there. Notice what's there, and then notice what's missing. What is here? Everybody's getting along. If Adam gets lost, he stops and asks for directions. He, everything works out exactly the way it's supposed to be. There's, somebody got that. There's no, there's no conflict they're naked <laughs> and unashamed. And everything's beautiful. And God has this wonderful relationship and there's this intimacy. And the partner that God gives to Adam is equal to and adequate for in every single way. And there's this perfect, united relationship between man and between woman and between the whole of humanity. And 
God tells Adam to do two things, to work the ground and to guard it, which is an, an amazing dual responsibility that we have, to work it, to serve it, to take care of it, and then to guard it, to protect it from malice and bad things. So that's what's there. And then Revelation, if you pull in some of the stories from Revelation 21 and 22 and the passages there, there are some things that are missing. No more crying. No shame. No deceit. There's no religiosity. There's no injustice. There's no inequity. So these pictures symbolize the thing and the way that God designed every single one of us to live. And that is fundamentally this huge Beautiful dynamic story of Genesis all the way through Revelation in the pictures of the tree of life. You see the tree of life here and you see the tree of life here. Now, how many of you would like to live over here? Raise your hand. Okay, some of you. Some of you are like, I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. Okay, how many of you want to live over here? That's right. Every, life, life here is fantastic. Life here is fantastic. What's the problem? We live between the trees. We don't live here, and we don't live here. We live here. Bummer. (laughs) This is a problem. Rather than love, we abuse. Rather than be respectful of one another, what do we do? We use one another. Rather than working out complicated conflicts, we just perpetuate them. Rather than seeking reconciliation, we'd just rather the other person suffer. Rather than working towards freedom, we'd rather work towards our own comfort. Uh, Rather than caring for the people around, we live between the trees. And for those of you who have holiday, family, Uh, joys and challenges, you know you live between the trees. Some of you go to church sometimes, whether it's Spark or somewhere else. On the way there, you can't even get to church, or that's the reason why you're going, because you're fighting the entire way. You really know that you live between the trees every time you get behind the wheel of a car, and people are rude and impatient, and there's life that's complicated. And all of this that we see and we experience, this abuse, this neglect, all of that stuff, all of these complications, all of this fallen shortness is what we call sin. This is what it is to be here. And we sum it up with this big word that we call sin. Now, oftentimes in our Christian circles and in religious understandings and in definitions in the way that sin is used, Sin is often boiled down into this one thing called the moral failure of your life. And whenever you have a moral failure, then I'm going to call that out and call that as sin. And you committed a sin, thus you are a sinful person. Um, But this biblical story, if we could open it up just a little bit, sin just simply means missing the mark. Sin means that we are striving or we had this, we once lived and experienced the fullness of what this was, and we are missing it. 
And sin is much more potentially in this greater story a condition of our reality, just like God cursed the ground, not cursing us, but he cursed the ground, and we have to live with the consequences of our reality. We have created a condition, and that's the entire condition is what is known as sin, not just the thing that you did that makes you a bad, evil, nasty person. It's the condition that we all live in. And in the years that uh, we've been pastoring and the conversations that I've had with students and with other people, you know, you don't have to tell people necessarily that they're sinners. Somehow, they know. Now, they may not know what they've done. They may not know what they've committed. But I guarantee you, the vast majority of the people that I've had relationships with and, and been in conversation with and been pastoring, they know full well the consequences of their actions and their behaviors. And they just don't know how to get out of those consequences. My guess is that the vast majority of this world totally gets it and totally recognizes and totally understands that we live between the trees. They just don't have the language for it. Now this is helpful, hopefully, because for each and every one of you, I figure out, I consider one of my goals in life is to lower everybody's expectations. You should recognize as soon as you walk out this door and as soon as you go home and as soon as you go to the department store and as soon as you go to work and as soon as you have any conversation with anybody that we live between the trees and guess what? They live between the trees too and they're going to treat you sometimes horribly. You're going to treat them sometimes horribly. Bad things are going to happen. Consequences are going to happen. People are not going to act the way that they should be. So everybody, lower your expectations. It always surprises me that people are so shocked and so like, I cannot believe so-and-so did this. I'm like, of course they did. We live between the trees. I can't believe they were so deceitful and backstabbing. I can. They live between the trees. I can't believe they're being so selfish. Oh, they drive me. I can believe they're selfish because they live between the trees. So hopefully this perspective is helpful a little bit for us to lower our expectations. I don't think this is completely unbiblical. For there's this beautiful passage in Proverbs that says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And so all I'm asking you is stop longing so much. And recognize that if somebody actually acts kind and decent, that should be a delightful surprise because they're doing that between the trees. If somebody is actually nice to you, act surprised and so thankful with a heart full of gratitude because they live between the trees and they are living outside of this reality, above and beyond this reality. Hope that's helpful anyway. <laughs> the second reason why I think this is helpful is because every single one of us within our soul, in the ways in which you act, in the ways in which you express yourselves, in the decisions that you make in your vocations and in your callings, you know that you live between the trees. And what your heart is crying out for is that reality or that reality. And when you go to work and you're struggling and striving and wrestling in education, where there's injustice and there's politics that are preventing kids from getting the proper education and you're working and struggling and striving so hard to make sure that they get the right education, you are reaching for this tree. You, that is not the way it's supposed to be. It should be in this particular 
direction. If you're a doctor or a physician and somebody comes into your office and they are sick and they're ailed, it's because we live between the trees that that is the reality, but then you administer your calling and your vocation and your skills and your education, all of that for the healing of this person. Why? Because this is where we're supposed to be. So you're helping people get here. You're helping people get here. And every single one of us, when we fight for justice, when we work for compassion, when we are a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or a parent, and we are working hard against all the things that exist here, what are you doing? You're reaching for the trees. And every time somebody does something wrong to you, and you want to rise up and say, either with revenge or with retribution, or with justice, or whatever it is, why do you have that impulse within you? Why is it that when somebody does you wrong, you want to make it right, or you want to do something? Why? Because you're reaching for this tree. And we couch this in all sorts of different terms. You know, oh, the way things used to be, or the hope that I'm hoping will come. And every single one of us, whenever we make any decision, any impulse for something Better than the way it is, what are we doing? We are reaching for the trees. And I would say, even people who don't believe in God, people who are distant, and maybe some of you here who do not have a relationship with the Lord, uh, don't know this Jesus character, but you know that there's something deep within here that says, this is not right, something else should be done, this is wrong, there's another and a different reality that we should have. Why do you have that in your souls? Because we all used to live here. And the scriptures tell us we are going towards here. Even you who don't maybe have any sense or relationship with God, you also have this sense in your soul that you're reaching for the trees. I suggest to you, then, that every single story and every passage and every movement and every redemption and every struggle and all of that that you find between the pages of Genesis and between the pages of Revelation, because we live here, all of that is God and humanity wrestling and struggling and striving together to get back here, to either get back here or get back here. You see a little bit of that, a picture with Adam and Eve. When they first fall, what do they do when they realize that they are naked? They reach for a tree. <laughs> that was brilliant, I know. And it is in some ways a little bit of a picture that they're reaching for a tree to help them. Um, I, there's this little... There's so much in Genesis. There's this little inference that we often think of the fig leaves as covering, which it is also covering, but there's a little bit of a, a nuance of that word which could mean supporting or encouraging or uplifting, like girding up or belting around, strengthening that which had fallen to re-tighten that which had become weak. We see another picture of that in the end of the Genesis 3 story where God kicks them out of the garden. And what does God place at the gates of the garden so that they, will, don't have to, that they will not uh, see the Garden of Eden again? They place angels also, uh, 
stated there in the scriptures, the cherubim, or cherubim is how you would say that in Hebrew, which is the same word that means burning. It's kind of like this fiery, angelic being. And Genesis 3 has angels with their wings pushing Adam and Eve out of the garden. And watch this beautiful thing. Later on, the next time we see the cherubim, again, not those little chubby babies, the cherubim, these fiery angels with their majestic wings, they're not pushing away from the tree of life. They are actually pushing towards the tree of life. In the Ark of the Covenant, in the book of Exodus, where God takes the Torah, the teachings, the things that he wants them to have, he puts them in this box, and then he covers them with the angels, and it's almost as if it's a complete reversal of the Genesis 3 story. That the angels in Genesis 3 were pushing you away from the tree of life. And now I want to point you towards the tree of life. And we see this. We, those are just two examples. Spark in many ways is trying to help each and every one of us and as many people as God allows us to influence to reach further for the trees. That the life and the experience that we have here has fallen short in some way, has missed the mark. And hopefully through these values and through our community and through our teaching and through our music and through one another, you will have taken another step closer towards the tree. You will have taken another another reach towards grabbing hold of the life that God really, truly intends for you. Now, this is hard work. Again, just read all the stories between Genesis and Revelation. There's a lot of faltering and failing. There's a lot of pride, and there's a lot of combating, and there's a lot of struggle. But every now and then, you'll see that there's redemption, and there's new life, there's resurrection, and we'll see that the scriptures start to use that language of the tree of life even again. Now, What's the opposite of life? And the prominent metaphor that the Bible uses for life between the trees is death. Uh, You know this through a couple passages. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, there's this beautiful ending where God comes to the Israelites and says, I have given you a choice. I have set before you two things, life and death, blessings and curses. And I love this passage because God is almost crying out from the depths of his soul, begging you, please choose life. But the other option is there, death. Notice the phrase, notice the word, death. Notice it's the same word that is in the very beginning of Genesis and the end of Deuteronomy. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will surely die. And we know they didn't die on that day. But death is that metaphor, is that symbol, is that picture for things not being the way God intended. And we see this, of course, in Romans uh, 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So, if this is the way God intended it to be, and that's where we've come from, and if this is the way God is working towards redeeming and restoring and putting it all back together again, and this is where we are headed. And we are praying desperately that this day would come. You and I live between the trees, and the ultimate picture of that is death. Well, let's ask a couple questions. Is God perhaps doing something about that death that lives here between the trees? 
Let me read a couple passages because I'm going to suggest to you that this image and this picture of the tree shows up again. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. Well, verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, and they're being uh, inundated with accusations from the Sanhedrin. And Peter says, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a... How many of you have cross? And how many of you have tree? The word in Greek is tree. Some modern translators have translated that cross because that's what you do. You hang them on a cross, but the original word is tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Flip over to Acts chapter 10, verse 39. We are witnesses of everything he did, Jesus of course. In the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Uh, Skip over to Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22, one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament, where Paul goes to the Areopagus. He's having a, a very a lively debate and conversation with the uh, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, very heady people. It's maybe why I like them. Um, and Paul stands up, verse 22, 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, which just simply means Mars Hill, and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious which is a little bit of a sarcastic statement because how many of you have seen Greek gods and goddesses and they are all over the place? Statues are all over the place. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your naked object, no, it doesn't say naked, Look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I am going to proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Listen to the creation language. The Lord of heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands. There's that word serve in Genesis. As if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations. There's that picture of the cities and the nations. That they should inhabit the whole earth, which is this picture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And he marked out their appointed times in history. Read Genesis 1, because the star and the sun and the moon are all there for appointed times times. He's invoking this beautiful language in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out. I love this passage. Why did God do that? 
Why did God set all of this? Because he's hoping that we would reach out. There's some some translations that say grope for God, yearn for him, reach out for him. God did this so that they would seek him, perhaps reach out for him, and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. One last passage, 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body. And then if your passage says on the cross, again, it's on the tree. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Life. Life. Death in between. And God was there walking in the garden. And God was there when he comes down in the beautiful new city. And God is also here. Between the trees. And there's a third tree standing between the two. The cross. Where Jesus dies. Where he takes all of that death And again, this isn't just that physical death. It is all of that, all of the sin, all of the fallen shortness, all of the stuff that makes our lives miserable because we live between the trees. He takes all that, places it upon himself. And then as we just read in in many of those passages and many more, is leading us to a brand new life right here. And why is this so amazing? Because we're never getting back here. That was then. And no matter how many predictions are made, we have no idea when this is going to happen. We live between the trees until God decides differently. And so there is a real tree that you can reach out for. That's the third tree. Why is this Jesus thing so important to us? Why is this following of Jesus and living out his life and embracing him and all of the fullness of who he is so important? Why is it such a deep, convicting, life-changing, transformational thing for people who know him and who don't know him, whether you're religious or not religious, whether you're a church-going person or not church-going person, whether you're a heady intellectual or whether you're a deeply spiritual and emotional person? Because wherever you are, on whatever spectrum, however God has created you, and whatever your experience is, there is a tree that you can grab hold of right here and right now that can bring life. And I think the scripture writers are using that image of the tree because this is called the what? Tree of life. And this is called the what? The tree of life. And what is the cross? This is also a tree of life. So, I hope and I pray. I'll ask uh, Ryan and Lily to come on up. They're going to close us in a chorus of, of the song. That as you live this life and as you understand the fullness of this relationship and this walking after God and this walking after Jesus, there's a tree that is here right now. And I love this message because what's right behind us the, in the synagogue here is the tree of life. And we are meeting at a synagogue called the tree of life. It's just all around us. And it's here and it's available for you.
And from the very beginning all the way to the very end, God's love has been available there in the garden, there in the city, and right here on the cross. Every experience of justice is you reaching for the trees. Every act of compassion and kindness is you helping others reach for the trees. Every time you are patient, every time you are good, every, every time you forgive, you are helping people reach for the trees. Every time you lay down your pride and you say, God, take me just as I am, you are reaching for the trees. And my prayer for all of us is that we would not only reach, but that we have a tree right here that we can grab hold of and embrace. And that is truly a tree of life. The value that we are talking about today or concluding on is reconciliation. And the reason why I think this message goes really well with that is because God is reconciling this entire story, both then and now, all in him. And you too can experience the fullness of that reconciliation as you reach for his tree, his tree of life. God, thank you for your amazing story and we bless you for the life that you have lived. We bless you for the creation story. We bless you for the revelation story. God, help us in this place and in this time to recognize that we're all striving and reaching and groping for you. And God, give us once again the reminder and the hope and the courage to reach out for you. You are the tree of life. And as we experience the struggles and the changes and the challenges of living between the trees, God, help us to embrace you. Help us to live fully and completely in that, the tree of life that you have grown for each and every one of us. I pray in your name, amen.